The Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast is proudly sponsored by New Vision. My team, Kanda, power. I love the power. power, power. I love the power. power, power. Good evening. Welcome to the Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast preview show for round three versus Essendon. The game will be played on Friday night at Adelaide Oval. Um, I'm Portia and joining me tonight are Macca19 and Janus. How are you guys? Morning, Rich. Morning, all. <laughs> Hello. Ah, so what a week in How football. Are we? <laughs> it's been a big one. <sighs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in this game this week. Uh, we heard, I think we heard at the start of the season, a lot of people saying, um, which is the real Adelaide? Will they stand up? Uh, is the, 19, the 2014 version and the 2015 version were so opposite? And we've seen that in two weeks. Um, really, just that that uh, contrast. Of, you feeling pretty confident about this one, or uh, got anything a bit concerned about? I've got some concerns, but uh, I guess we'll get to them a little bit later. Um, mm. I think we should win, but um, yeah, just the way Essendon play football this year, I think it could be a little bit of a concern. Mm. All right. Well, we'll just go straight into couple of hot topics before we get to the game itself. Um, one big, big, big announcement happened shortly after the game, or the day after the game last week, which is the uh, announcement of a significant new venture in relation to Port's entry into China. Um, this week, Port Adelaide versus Essendon is going to be played live in, or is it live into China? Broadcast into China on China Central Television. Um, and we've done a broadcast deal where we'll co-produce a Chinese version of the winners, uh, talking about the AFL and all the games around the league, uh, in cooperation with a Chinese company. Um, and if you're going to the game, it'll be pretty different too. We'll have player names in Chinese numbers above the number, uh, Chinese characters above the number, uh, a China-themed Guernsey with apparently Aussie and Chinese flags on the front, and a bunch of red all around the ground. Um, obviously, this has been a long time coming, a lot of hard work done, and obviously through Lockhart Road on um, Bigfooty, he's had a fairly heavy involvement in that, I suppose. Um Big news. Hard to know, I think, what direct benefits the club will get from that. What do you guys think, Naka? I think it's a great thing. Yeah, it's hard to see, I guess, at the moment what benefits will come uh, a little bit later on, but you would think that we'll get some sort of a commercial benefit from this, um, maybe a couple of different sponsors. Uh, that would be wonderful. Um, I think they've done a wonderful job in getting this uh, up and running. Um and look, I mean, I guess it's a little bit hard to see how it's going to go in China. Uh, but if it does kick off, then it's not just massive for Port Adelaide, but it's absolutely massive for the AFL as a whole as well. And Jane, um, what do you think in regards to that? If I was going to use a word, it would be zing bang for oh, this uh, development. It means, it means awesome, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I looked at it. I, I did. I did do uh, learn Chinese in high school for like a couple of years, but yeah. So maybe that's going to pay off at some stage. Who knows? But the thing that I would say about it is that it doesn't matter how many people watch it, as long as the right people are interested in it. So as long as we get some sort of like people who are interested in the game and, and start developing those ties to China mm. with those various different people, then. That's all we need to do. So it doesn't really matter if, you know, someone came on the forum and said, oh, you know, you're not going to get many people watching it or who's going to watch this or what's this going to do. It's like you don't need everyone watching it. Like I said, you just need the right people watching it. Yeah, I, 
I guess the concern with the reach that uh, China Central Television has in China, which is apparently significant, is that we look at the numbers and they'll potentially be huge if they just get their regular viewing for that time slot. But the reality is that if it doesn't become a good amount for its time slot for China, you'd have to wonder how long the plan would last for, um, because TV stations are notoriously fickle with projects that aren't rating as well as they'd like. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same deal in China, but um, yeah, I guess we'll see. And uh, just have to hope that our product lives up to the hype. I I suppose that the fact that this game looks to be a little bit closer than maybe it was at the start of the season may help in that regard. Um, Alright, and I suppose the next hot topic, um, a lot of anger after last week's game, obviously, um, and there's been a lot of fur flying in regards to Port's coaching lineup. Um, it hasn't changed a lot, and uh, we've lost, obviously, two senior coaches in the last two years, in uh, Walsh and Richardson. Um, we've had a lot of people picking out people like Michael Voss and so forth. Do you you guys think we know enough about the responsibilities of individual line coaches to sort of be picking individuals out and saying there's a problem, or um, what's your view on that? I still don't think it's a coaching issue. I think it's more of a um, motivation and work rate issue. I think that's uh, where the problems are coming on at the start of this season. Um, as you said, we don't really know the intricacies of what the coaches do and what they tell the players. So it is a little bit hard to criticise. I guess if one sort of section of the ground is, uh, isn't performing over a number of um, games or a number of years, then you're probably right to criticise. But at the moment... I still think it's a playing issue as opposed to a coaching issue. Okay, and um, we had Ken yeah, su- yeah, we had Ken suggest in the press conference that it might be the players at fault. What do you think on that, Janus? Well, that's what I was just about to say. I think mm-hmm. that when you've got Hamish Hartlett talking about how at the centre bounce, like the first bounce of the game last week, none of the players were set up into any of the positions that they were supposed to be at. And you don't have defenders pushing back in defence like they're supposed to and supporting um, in, in in defensive 50. That's nothing to do with the coaches. The coaches have told them to actually do that. It's exactly what Maka said about work rate and the ability to push through and maybe you know go support the te- your teammates even though you might not be seemingly doing anything and getting like the plaudits of whatever it is that you're looking for, but. Yeah, I just I think it's a player-driven issue rather than anything else. Fair enough. Um, and there's some thought that when, when um... all the coach when all the coaches come out and say that it's a player issue, and when half the players come out and say it's a player issue, then it's definitely a player issue. That's a pretty fair comment. Exactly. Mm, mm. Um, all right, and so. Um, special topic we sort of want to bring up this week and related to the coaching as well is the idea of the press, which is uh, something that Janice has been quite vocal on on the forums in the last couple of weeks and been quite interesting, a bit of a departure from our usual discussion and quite intense. So I thought it'd be good to just uh, do a quick recap on that and uh, work out how that really affects us coming into the season. So I'll just start off with a a very brief history of uh, how, I suppose, defensive strategy has been through the ages. Uh, obviously, in the Dark Ages, which is most of football history, we basically played man-on-man football, except for around the ruck, uh, full forwards versus full backs, centre-half forwards versus centre-half backs, and all that sort of thing. Um, but then I think that really there was a change around the 90s when we really started seeing the introduction of the Great Flood, uh, in part, I think, led by Fremantle with Jared Neesham to some extent, uh, and it really became quite popular as a way of controlling uh, how forward lines broke into and scored goals. Um, 
the main flaw there was it was picked apart quite readily by explosive midfielders uh, after time and or by precision movement or possession football. And I suppose for the explosive midfields, really just need to look at the Brisbane Lions there. Um, they had a key forwards, uh, but more importantly, they just were too hard to beat and too quick, and they were able to get to the ball the right, all the right spots. Um, Swans and Eagles were pretty similar in that regard, and of course, precision movement and possession football was pretty heavily about Port Adelaide. Um, the notable thing about that structure was that players would run back to defensive position rather than necessarily heavily pressure someone with the ball uh, because they'd be going back to sort of their set defensive positions. So you'd see a lot of territory lost in midfield quite quickly. Uh, and so in time we saw a, a bit of a change, which I think was probably best exemplified by Neil Craig's Crows side, in my view, um, as much as it's hard to give credit to the Crows for anything. It's not so much that they invented it, but that they got it pretty well done, uh, where there's a more structured flooding uh, into defence, uh, but rather than shifting back to a rigid network of player placement, it was a fairly uh, rigid structure, but the structure itself moved up and down the field as the ball moved. Uh, which meant that you always had some defenders on the other end of it uh, trying to uh, basically had to get through all the time, you had to get through waves of players. Um, really, we haven't moved on too far from that step, although uh, to different degrees of complexity. Um, but it's still a fairly rigid format in that their side-to-side movement is not necessarily all that great for players. Um, and I think we saw another trend coming through after that, which is the rolling mall, which is the idea of just having as many players around the ball as possible, where you'd have some zoning, absolutely, but it, you'd just be focusing heavily on just making sure you had huge numbers around the contest as much as possible. Um, the AFL didn't like that, and they've made a bunch of rules to as much as they can to try and limit how much that is used. Um, and I suppose the role model kind of includes the cluster. Uh, and so now we're looking at the press, which is something that we believe Nathan Bassett's introduced to our side, and it's sort of popping up around the place, which is the basically... Very similar in my view, and I might be proven wrong here, we're going to have Janus be an expert on this, and Macker, of course, uh, is very similar to Neil Craig's uh, setup, in, except it's probably slightly more responsive and more based around a, a radial point in the middle, which is the ball carrier at the time, rather than being sort of linked to where you are on the ground and moving backwards and forwards along one... Uh, what's the word? Along one line... Um, and so that's, uh, I think that's probably where we're at. Janus, do you think that's around about the mark or have you got some more thoughts on that? Have I got it a bit wrong, possibly? No, you got a, that's a pretty good history of the way that defensive tactics have gone. Um, yeah, I'd like to get Macca's thoughts first yeah. on what he thinks we're, we're doing before I put my things down because it's a little bit different to what everyone else is saying. Okay. Even, yeah, yeah. Okay, throw me under the bus. That's all right. Um, Sorry. <laughs> look, <laughs> well, look, look, as you've said, Portia, the press has been part of football for a long time. Um, the Crowbots have done it. Clarko's Cluster was um, a, a kind of press. Um, the Ross Lyons sides has been similar. It's been part of football for a long time, and, and it can be very successful. Teams have won premierships and made grand finals from it. Um, as I said in the preview uh, a few days ago, it relies on good positioning and, uh, and in particular, work rate to pull it off. Um, otherwise, it can be picked apart quite easily, as we've seen. Um, for me, the whole point is that the players who receive the ball look up um, and feel like they have nowhere to go. So they see a bunch of opponents running at them, they kick it, um, and you'll be able to outnumber that contest as well with, uh, with your defenders. You know, They see a wall of port players closing in, they end up rushing a disposal and a turnover, which we hit on the counter, um, which uh, you want to do pretty quick. Um, so that that's probably 
what I think we're trying to do here is that you set, you, you kind of set up in lines, um, almost similar to soccer, um, and as I said, the, the basis of it is you try and outnumber every contest that you get to, um, which obviously relies on a lot of work rate to pull it off, um, and which is probably the main issue that I have at the moment is not that uh, the press is a bad idea, it's just that um, we currently don't have the work rate or the mentality of the players to be able to pull this off. Yeah, that yeah, seems I'd fair. agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, the thing that you were describing, Macca, about uh, pressuring the ball carrier and stuff, that um, I was doing some research today about various different tactics and stuff, and in most other sports, they actually call that um, a word called cover shadow. And basically what the whole implication of that is is that the defender coming toward the person with the ball creates a a cone behind him that as he gets closer to the person with the ball the cone gets wider because the person can't see anybody but the defender coming towards him does that make sense yeah yeah mm. okay um yeah, so that's one of the fundamental tenets of doing the press is that you've got to pressure the ball. But I think the problem that we're having at the moment is we don't know when to press and when not to. We're pressing when we don't have a method of actually getting to the ball and getting and turning it over because the ball's already, like, in a marking situation, for example, if the opposition marked the ball um, 15 or 20 metres away, it's basically the equivalent of a free kick in soccer or something like that and when there's yeah. no way of pressing that those particular people there's no point in doing it but we're still pushing up for some unknown reason and that's why bassett was saying well there's no reason to push up at that particular point in time because mm. you can't do anything about it but yeah. conversely when hinkley was talking about we're not being aggressive he's talking about when we don't when the ball's in dispute basically, or mm. the players are trying to take the game on or something like that. And that's the reason why one of the keys that we're not doing as well is we're not compact enough around the ball, which means basically not cutting off all the angles in terms of what the um, the person with the ball has, like the options that they have, and making forcing them into bad decisions or anything like that. Um, and one of the good things about being compact is when you turn the ball over you've got options yourself that you can go to it's like oh, i've got a i've got a player 10 meters away from me five meters got a player behind me got a player to the left to the right because they're all around the ball mm. and that's yeah. what happens and one of the things that and i made this post about uh gen gen pressing or counter pressing which is a bit different to normal pressing in the fact that normal pressing is just we're trying to get the ball back at an, any cost. Whereas counter-pressing is, if you went through, there's four stages of attack, of play in any sport. You've got offensive organisation, which is what you do when you have the ball. Transition from offence into defence, right? It's what do we do when we lose the ball. Defensive organisation, what do we do when we don't have the ball? And then back to offensive transition, what do we do when we gain the ball? And what counter-pressing is, is basically going from, instead of waiting for the opposition to go from offensive 
their offensive, no, sorry, their defensive organization and waiting for them to transition to defense and then, sorry, I'll start again. Going from defense and transitioning into offense, what we do is at that particular point in time when they're doing that transition, that's when you press right then. But you don't press any other time other than then because what's the, the purpose is, is the main time when teams are going to turn the ball over is when they're in that transition from going from defense into attack, simply mm. because what happens is they're all flat-footed. They're all in a defensive zone, and they're all they're not. I mean, even though they're expecting to win the ball back because they're hoping to win it, they don't know when they're going to win it back. They don't know when we're going to make a mistake or someone's going to turn the ball over or cough it up. So they're all in a defensive mindset. They win the ball, and they're like, oh, great, we've got the ball. Let's all push forward into attack. But they're all still in that defensive mindset if that makes sense yeah and that's the best time to because that's when things happen when turnovers happen but what i think the plan is and this is my theory and it's, there's no um there's not a lot of proof to, to this other than a few things that have happened during some of the games like for example um robbie gray and carlisle tracking players through the midfield and Jimmy Tumpus going from, there was a time when I think it was Brad Crouch was pushing down the wing and he didn't have an opponent. He left his opponent to go challenge him, basically. Mm-hmm. And then Pittard had to move him and that's the reason why Lynch was left all alone. I think because of that, and, and then like I said, that's the only proof that I've got that this is what we're trying to do. I think we're doing something called option-oriented zonal marking, Ooh. which is basically... <laughs> which is basically it's like pretty much and I kid you not this is pretty much like the hardest defense to try and do so it is complicated but it's a combination of right one-on-one defense zonal marking and blocking passing lanes right basically the whole idea of it is your point of reference in terms of how you defend is where the ball is yeah and it requires intelligence from the defense, from all the team to basically say, how can this ball, where it is right now, how can this harm us, and what can we do to prevent it from happening? So how are we going to react to this? So basically what it is is if you might have, for example, five or six or seven players pressing up on one side if the ball's on the wing, but then on the other side, other players can peel off and go to the right and actually cover the the cross field kick if you know what i mean so they basically react to whatever's happening down the field now the problem is is that if they do that and it doesn't work you can get opened up so easily it's not funny and that's what's been happening so it takes a while to learn it but once it does learn then we're golden Mm, i think that's yeah i understand what you're saying so basically, rather than actually having any sort of view of having one player on one player anymore, it really just becomes a team event where you all react as one to a set of circumstances based on, I guess, a priority listing that they're given by the coaches. Is that about right? So it's like, okay. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the, the whole there, point of... Yep. Sorry, you go. Are there still roles for individual players within that? So is it like, okay, you guys are responsible for blocking passing lanes or is it just, I'm in about the right spot to block a passing lane, I'll do it. And then someone else goes, oh, there's too many, I'll go do something else. 
is it sort of you have to make that decision on the fly as you're playing? I would say that generally you would have um, the less mobile players would be the ones that would go off to cover get-out kicks that are a long way away because they have the... um, Because obviously the kick is going so far in the air, 15 metres or whatever, they've got the reaction time and the capability of getting into a one-on-one contest with a attacker that's on the other side or something like that. So it is it is definitely role-based, based on how you are as a defender and, and things like that. But um, what I was going to say was that, which I think the new transition or the new phase of where defence or football will, will, will head is to a point where there are no transitions in play. It's more of a case of, Everyone's just um, hang on. I I'm going to read you exactly what it said in this site that actually had this thing. So because okay. it's kind of hard to. And there are, it says um, to use the traditional game phases in order to better explain this. When in possession, the team want to have a positional structure which is efficient for attacking, but would help them counter press the ball or drop deep if they lose it. While transitioning to defence, the team seeks to have a positional structure which is best for pressuring the ball or protecting the goal, but also translates well into the other phases. And in other words, we're trying to forge a system where what, whereby we can attack when defending and defend while attacking. So you don't have that transition yeah. phase at all. It's just you're just constantly in this zone of, okay, we're in attack. Okay, now we're in defence. Oh, now we're in attack again rather than having to go with, oh, we're going through this transition phase of, oh, we've got the ball, now what do we do? Because you're already set up all the time to go both ways. Yeah. This sounds... I don't know. Mm. <laughs> you, would have to, you would have to think that this means we probably don't currently have the right list to do this because of the amount of learning that is required and change in accepted thinking. For that to have the well, full effect, I don't know about I mean, that. The, yeah, it, I mean, it requires just people who are wanting to learn, have the ability to learn, and just say, "Well, you know, I mean, how hard is it to say, okay, at this particular point in time, oh, there's some guys over here on the wing. Let me go and, and stand with those guys because I'm not doing anything else 70 meters from the play," which is what a lot of people are saying. They're like, "Oh." We're pressing it. Why are we doing a high line for when we're pushing up? It's like, well, what's the point of having defenders? It's like having the same thing that Mick. I think it was Mick Malthouse said. If forwards are like 60 meters away from the play, they're out of the play and they're completely useless. That's why you push them back into midfield for that very reason. And it's the same thing with defense. Why have the defenders set up all ready for an attack when you can push them up further and generate an attack with them? If that makes exactly. sense. I don't know. If I'm <clears throat> speaking. So, the whole you know. point is that you, you turn the ball over further up the field so that instead of turning the ball over in your defensive 50, you're turning it over through the middle of the ground. Therefore, you've got less room um, or it's, it's quicker transition football to be able to counterattack than you score more quickly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically what the, counter, what the counterpress is, is basically the sister um, tactic to the counterattack, which is what the slingshot is. The slingshot is based on, um, instead of reacting to, it's basically reacting from a f- offensive, um, 
the offensive transition to defense of the opposition because they're an attack and then they lose the ball and then you counterattack and you just go, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what it is and that's why you open up it up, everything up. Whereas a counter press is basically, okay, we've got the ball and then we lose it, but we're going to hit him again and stop and turn the ball back over so we can regain possession again. So it, yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, but, so, yeah well, it makes sense. This- the way I perceive the difference is that the slingshot, um, you actually have a little bit of time to say, okay, we're attacking now in that you're sort of, you're getting the ball, uh, but when the ball's in transition to you, you're already aware that you're about to turn you are about to turn it around. So it might be that there's an errant kick that you're picking off or a ground ball that you're scooping up or something like that, and that you're fairly aware that you're going yeah. forward at that point. Whereas the press, you are even more aware that there's not that moment. It's like as soon as you suspect, you can see that there's going to be a contest. You're going at that point, so you're setting up more aggressively uh, from the start. Yeah. You, you're not waiting for the ball to come to you from an errant kick. You're already running to the position where you reckon the errant kick is going to go based on what's happening upfield from you. Is that pretty much accurate? Exactly. I mean, counter press is more active. You're actually mm-hmm. determining the play, or what's going to happen, because based on where you're standing. So you're saying, well, I'm not going to let this guy do this kick, this diagonal kick across the 50-meter line and get out and go through the corridor. I'm going to stand in between here so he doesn't have that thing. So therefore, the guy with the ball says, well, I can't do this kick anymore. I've got to go down the wing like these people have to say. And then you've got all your um, people set up there to turn the ball over or whatever. So whereas the counter-attack or the slingshot is reactionary, the counter-press is actionary, if that's a word. Yeah. You're being proactive. Yeah, that's it. That's the word I'm looking for. Proactive. It's interesting. I um, feel like we're being. I feel like we're doing the equivalent of ball watching at the moment, and that's pulling mm-hmm. people out of position. Uh, and it only really takes two or three players to be out of position for this to whole to sort of fall apart a little bit. I feel. Um, so it, it's really players really have to be mindful of what they're doing, what their role is, um, where they are on the ground in in determination of where the ball is, where their opponents are, you know, other lines with their teammates, all that sort of stuff. And I feel like we're just getting out of position um, by not really paying attention, really. Yeah. Well, that, we're that's, getting sucked towards the ball. That's surely yeah. got to be the key issue there, is that, that not only the lack of attention representing the fact that you, it's very easy to lose focus over four quarters of football, but also just the experience level that's required. And it's not even based on traditional experience, based on a experience of a new style of play that we're not actually even playing yet. I mean, this seems to me like it's not going to be an overnight transition if it's what we're doing um uh, i'm sure that jasper pittard i mean that's exactly how he plays already so he's fine he's good he's probably the one yeah. he should probably be made captain right now actually or pretty close to it <laughs> um i'm not even joking um but settle really... down rick if you're listening <laughs> i was gonna say just just on that when yeah. uh i think uh russell Lee handball was talking about how oh we haven't found uh johan kruf yet I was going to post that. I think it could be Jasper Pittard. I really do. But anyway, that's, yeah. a, that's a story for another time. I think the main concern for me is that the fact that you're already counterattacking means that you're relying to some degree on instinct based on what you've seen before, and that's why you're getting the ball watching. But what that also means is that the press is countered by things that you haven't seen before. Um, so, for example, I've written this down as just a thought of what would actually counter the counter press. Uh, and that's something you see in NFL for NFL fans, which is the West Coast offense, which is basically based around a series of short plays that don't necessarily have any real connection to each other. So 
if you're already going, as soon as you think there's a, t a contest developing as you're, you're the counterpress, um, you're going to base what your decision is on what things you've seen before. So you think, well, I know he's a left footer, so he's probably going to kick off the left foot. And I know he's got a target over there, so he's probably going to go over there. So you're doing probably, probably, probably. And because you're making the decision in that sharp moment, the best thing to do is take the the high percentage option, like what you think is the most likely thing to do. But what that means then is that if the attacking side mix it up with a little bit of low percentage stuff, it's going to throw you and the rest of your defenders right off. Um, if you do like a, a quick lateral kick to one side or you do like Jasper Pittard's done on occasion where you run around in a circle and they don't know how to react to that, um, anything you can do that is slightly indirect, I would think would have a very real chance of throwing off that whole counter press and then you just get a blowout. Am I, am I wrong there? The thing about that is, is that that's why counterpress doesn't happen all the time. It only yeah. happens for that little period of time. And then by the time that, and when you're pressing against these, like a certain player with the ball, and might he might do that. He might say, I oh, know, I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do. I'm going to kick backwards. I'm going to go to the right here. I'm going to do this or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to waste time and basically stop you from doing it. That gives the defense, which was pressing up at the time, time to set up. Right. And now that they're in a more of a, um, traditional structure, if that makes yeah. sense. So it's, it's not a case of all we're trying to do. Basically when you do the counter press, you're trying to win the ball and if you yeah. win it, great. But if you don't win it, at least you've stopped them from running. Yeah, okay. Right? Which saying. is one... <clears throat> that's what a, what a lot of the, the teams now are, are all in about an attack. It's like, oh, we're going to go, go, go. We're going to play on at all costs and stuff. I think if you do the counter-press way of playing, you're going to stop that from happening because they won't be able... They will go, oh, what the hell? What am I supposed to do? You know, I'm, I need to go and kick it this way or I'm going to kick it long or I'm going to do this. And you've got that opportunity to react that some of them do some of them are, are active in terms of the the players that are close to the ball but the players away from the ball that are in a more traditional structure they have time to react to anything that the other players are doing like the opposition's doing mm. it's an interesting point you make Jane is what you said before how you attack when you defend and you defend when you attack and I think it's spot on and I think we're probably letting ourselves down with our ball uh, movement and quality of ball movement at the moment. You know, we've got... Um, this is where maybe a little bit of coaching comes in because I think these long bombs that we're doing when we've got the ball, I, I, I can't understand why we're playing in that way. And that's possibly a coaching issue. And you look at the quality of the ball movement that we've got. You know, we've got the lowest marks in the competition, the third lowest marks inside 50, despite having the second highest inside 50s in the league. And that's just because we're just burning the ball and we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to actually defend when we've got the ball and to actually set up properly. Uh, but well, in, theory, at... in theory with the counter-press, though, is that what you're doing, let's say you get the ball at the front of the centre square and you bomb it long to Charlie Dixon at full forward, which is realistically what we're talking about here. Um, if he doesn't mark and he brings it to ground, or even better yet, if there's a ball up, then in theory, our players have already run up the field and they're ready to counter-press, which means that if the ball does go the other way, then we're already inhibiting them from getting it out of that forward 50 arc for us. Uh, and so it becomes literally what we've always said, you know, Daryl Poole, John Butcher, Charlie Dixon can do is keep the ball in the area because by bringing it to ground and making it a contest and then counter-pressing to make that contest not able to move the ball forward, then that contains it to our forward area. And then 
from then on, in theory, we can cause a turnover or cause another ball up and win the clearance or whatever else and keep it in our forward line. So I think that's the theory behind it to a large extent, uh, as opposed to necessarily securing the mark. Um, but I kind of feel like if we had a really good mark, we'd probably be doing that instead. I don't know. Yeah. That's, Which gets to my point that that's not exactly what we're doing at the moment. We're burning yeah, exactly. the ball, so exactly. we're not actually we're not turning it over at, on the edge of the forward fifty, and we're not bombing it long to Charlie Dixon in the square. We're turning it over um, at the back of the the square, and we're turning mm. it back over when we just boot it long to a, a crowd of like twenty five players. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, there was a, there was a uh, a time period in the first quarter because. I had to go watch the first quarter again because that was the time when it just all ended. Right. Anyway, there was a time in the first quarter where we went through a situation where we had around about three intercept marks in a row. All right. Mm. There was Jackson Tringove marked it, Tom Jonas marked it, I think Homsch marked it as well. And that's all we were doing was bombing it back into inside 50 to a contested situation, which was we were outnumbered like three to one or something mm. like that. Mm. Right. Now, in those sort of situations, you go, okay, yeah, fair enough, you can set up for a, uh, a counter-press or whatever, you know, but the point of the story is you're supposed to actually retain possession and actually score a goal. That's the main <clears throat> main point of the game, right? You're not, the point of the game isn't to, like, defend as much as you can. It's to score so you can reset back into the center and, you know, start winning the goal, winning the game. You know yeah. what I mean? So... I think one of the things that the problem the our players have is they're just, as I think Hinkley said it today or yesterday in his press conference, one of the two, um, he was talking about how the players have become, they're too Dixon conscious, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, you're playing this new toy and stuff. And it happened with Ryder as well last year. You know, oh, we'll kick it along to Ryder because we've got this this new toy that we're playing with and he'll mark it, you know, and we wanted to get him into the thing. But there's all these other options that they're not looking at and you see it through all the all the games you go through them. You see players streaming through from defense into offense or whatever and we're not using them for whatever reason, I don't know, simply because we've got this hulking centre-half forward that, you know, you want to get into the game. Mm-hmm. So once, once we learn how to, once we learn how to, like, just take, keep... Res- possession of the ball and retain it a little bit more and go, okay, I'm not going to go for this option straight away. I'll just hold it for a little bit and look for something good. We'll, we'll be better. And it only takes like a couple of seconds. Yeah. yeah. Rather than blazing away like in the first half second when you get it, like Sam Gray is notorious for doing this. You know, it just yeah. gets all and just kicks around the corner and it's like, oh, it's down the field. Where's it going? I don't know. As long as it's away from here, and he might think that he knows, like he's doing it properly, because you know we can push down and we can push the line down and stuff. But far better once you've got possession, you want to keep Secure it, it. I would yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Like, keep it as long as possible. Well, yeah. we must be doing something right because we've scored seventy-two points per game from uh, intercept possessions, which is second mm. across the AFL. So we are getting, you know, we're almost there. We're just not completely there. I think if we can. Settle down our positioning um, and, and make sure the players are really mindful of where they are on the ground. Um, I think we're going to see this really kick off and it's going to be bloody hard to play against. All right. Well, I think that's fully enough about the press. I think we've lost a few of our listeners on the speaker because we've gone pretty deep, but it was fun. I liked it. Um, I guess we'll get into talking about the game itself that's coming up on Friday, uh, which is, of course, the... Uh, 
the Port versus Essendon game. Um, now, the last time we met was in round 17 last year at uh, Dockland Stadium. Uh, we were at a point when we still believed that Port could just make finals, and because we still believed in the story of 2014, we thought, oh, we can come home strong and get in and make it all the way. Uh, and uh, so we had a, a very fairly close game at Docklands. Uh, we won 126 points to Essendon 116. Uh, Paddy Ryder kicked four goals, and uh, it, it looked like we were in with a chance. You guys uh, have any recollections of that game you'd like to share? It was a good game. Paddy Ryder had a day out in his first match against his old side. You've got to love that. Um, James Hurd had a bit of a tanty after the game. Got to love that. Um, yeah, not not much else to say about that one, really. It was just one of those sort of games where we just had to win, and we did. Um, didn't sort of end up all that well at the end of the season anyway, so that doesn't really matter. But um, I guess like a, a lot of poor Essendon matches, it was uh, reasonably tight and could have really gone either way. And I think that's... Possibly a bit of a theme with Portness, and I think over the years. Yeah, they're always pretty rough games as well, as a rule. Um, there's always someone hurt or mm. uh, something controversial in terms of the umpiring picking out a victim and a villain. <laughs> and they're very spiteful. I don't know what it is about Portness and them, but uh, there seems to be a lot of spite out there between the playing group. Yeah, well, we, still, we still all have. That's what it is. Wang Wangani, Freeze Rider. They just don't like us at all. Scotty Cummings, I mean, don't forget Scotty Cummings. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty Cummings, yes. Um, yeah, my recollection of that Kane game Ash. was just the... Choco <laughs> 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 got his man in the end. Anyway, um, my recollection was, like you said, the herd, the Oompa Loompa having a tantrum at the end. All right, that was worth the price of just watching that game. But it was basically one of those that... You basically knew because every other team for some was thumping Essendon, but we couldn't do it, that it wasn't going to happen this year or that year in 2015. I mean, I think it was like two weeks later, the Crows just completely destroyed them or something like that. And it was like, oh, okay, that's what we should have done, but we couldn't manage to do it. And we just never got it going ever. Mm. So it's just what it is, I guess. I mean, and it's probably going to. I guess you could probably say the same thing about tomorrow night. We don't, you know, get it going or anything like that, and we just barely scrape over the line. Well, then you can just basically say to you to yourselves, well, maybe this year's the learning year or something like that. But personally, I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm always excessively optimistic, is the word that some people would use. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, now, we've had, uh, just as far as the uh, outs and ins, uh, we had a couple of. I suppose, pretty significant outs. Uh, one very significant and one you know, maybe you don't wish for players to get injured, but the loss is probably not as painful as some that we have already had this season. So we've had uh, Chad Wingard, obviously, that's a pretty bad one. He's out with a hamstring injury. Uh, Alipati Carlisle, um, maybe there wasn't really a matchup for him this week, but he's out with a wrist injury regardless. And uh, Dougal Howard's been dropped from the side, which I've got to say I'm not super excited about. Um, I think felt he had enough pace to be part of this uh, new setup. Um, what do you guys see about those outs? Carlisle out for, uh, what is it, four to six weeks, so that'll hurt, especially considering mm. Cleary um, isn't back from injury yet either. Maybe True. it might uh, open the door for um, Logan Austin to get a game in the next few weeks, which uh, is exciting for me. Um, Chatty Wingard out, I mean, that's just devastating because he does play well against Essendon. Um Picked up Brownlow votes against them last year, so that's uh, that's really disappointing. Uh, Dougal Howard, I mean, 
it's it's a strange one. I, I can only assume that maybe they think we might be going in too top heavy um, against their defence because their defence is pretty short. Um, and maybe they feel like uh, they might be able to get a bit of advantage there uh, running it out. I don't really know. On the flip side, we could have been a bit tall and uh, maybe taken a few marks. But I don't know. It's a bit of a strange one. Would have helped uh, with Lobie in the ruck as well. But, uh, yeah, I guess uh, Trengove will be doing that job this week. Yeah, and uh, now the ends, we've got uh, Carl Amon coming in, Darcy Byrne-Jones coming in for his debut, and I suppose it's the biggest surprise for all of us, in my view anyway, is uh, Paul Stewart makes a return to the side. Uh, Janus, how do you see those ins? Yep. <clears throat> I like Amon and Byrne-Jones, obviously. Pace is always good, especially with Amon. Uh, Darcy Byrne-Jones, good in defence, will push back. That's what you want. Stewart, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can... Yeah... I can sort of see it, but then I can't either. <laughs> if, what does that mean? If that makes sense. It, it's well, a strange one. It's just it's just one of those. It's like mm, yeah, you just don't you don't know you don't know what they're actually thinking about selecting him. Like I, I guess it depends on what his role is going to be in the side, basically. And you never yeah, really but, know with Paul Stewart because he can play everywhere. He can play as a sort of quasi-key forward. He can play down back. He can run through the midfield, can play on a wing. He can play absolutely anywhere. I, uh, the part that's maybe a little bit baffling for me is the fact that he hasn't really been in all that sort of sizzling form in the SANFL. He's been all right, but they're sort of picking him for a reason. And uh, as you said, I guess we'll find out what that reason is uh, tomorrow night. Do you think it's really just I mean, matter of trying to get experience back into the side, given how much has dropped out? No, I think it's probably more to do with uh, the fact he's a, he's a pretty good utility, can play anywhere and uh, might be able to perform a few different roles um, on the night. I uh, also think his defensive um, pressure is fantastic um, and given the lack of that across the team in the first two weeks, uh, that might be a reason why he's coming. That's fair enough. Um, and I guess uh, we should mention them. They're not actually ins, but uh, there's three emergencies this week. And because, obviously, that we're playing on the Friday night and then the Magpies are playing on the Saturday, I reckon there's still a reasonable chance that any one of them might come in. Uh, and, of course, I'm pretty keen on that. Um, the first one is Cam O'Shea. We've got uh, Sam Cahoon and, of course, Dougal Howard is actually has been listed as an emergency. So do you think there's any chance that we might be playing games with A22 and maybe someone will drop out and someone will come in? I guess the only one might be Boak if he is actually playing injured. Um, and if he does drop out, maybe someone like O'Shea or um, Hoon might come in. Um, maybe Hoon, I guess. But, yeah, not sure. I'd like to talk about DBJ uh, yeah. or McLovin uh, making his debut. I reckon it's great. Um, pick 52. <laughs> he looks like McLovin. It's great. Um, he was pick 52 in the 2013 draft. Uh, he becomes player 159 to represent Port Adelaide at uh, AFL level. Um, and I guess he's someone that's been a little bit uh, maybe uh, criticised for his games at SANFL level on the forum a little bit. Um, a few might have thought he was lucky to stay on the list uh, at the end of last year. Um, so I reckon it's fantastic that he's getting his debut this early in the season. And you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of DBJ, and I reckon um, you know he's going to prove the doubters wrong. Do you think he might be uh, one of the guys that's sort of been considered to be part of the Pittard fleet of uh, intelligent halfbacks that you can rely on to be a cog in this press that we're going to adapt to? Do you think that might be part of it? I think so. I think he's improved the mental side of his game. Um, his pressure, um, staying in the moment a bit more. Um, in his first season, he was a little bit flighty. He could get out of position, uh, make some bad errors with the ball, but... 
Um, with the games he's played so far this year, I thought he was just about best on ground for us on the weekend. Mm. Um, and he was really impressive in his couple of games that he played um, uh, in the preseason at AFL level as well. So um, really excited to see what he can do. Absolutely. Um, now, so as far as uh, where do you think he'll play in the field? Do you think he'll be given an accountable role? Do you think he'll be just a, a bit of an outside flanker? What sort of position do you think he'll get time in? Tough one. It's a tough one. I'm not sure. I think we'll probably see him down back, um, you know, on a half-back flank. He might um, maybe do a bit of a, uh, a Pittard-type role. Um, he might play on someone like Matthew Stokes, maybe someone like Nick Comer, someone like that. That's fair enough. Um, just on the McLovin nickname, there's been a bit of a mixed reception in the Spreaker chat room. Uh, Dylan is against. <laughs> uh, I think Rick is in favour. And uh, no, no, Paul Valudis is in favour. And uh, Daniel Irvin reckons he's going to kick three goals, so that's pretty good. Um, Rick's asked, Where's Logan Austin? And I guess that's a question that could be asked, but I think that's probably fairly well answered by the fact that if we're dropping Dougal Howard because he's a bit tall and there's not really time to bring in Logan Austin at this point, I would have thought. Mm. Um, all right, so look, I'll just to talk quickly about Essendon. Um, I had the fortune, misfortune of going to the Essendon-Melbourne game last week instead of watching the um, showdown on TV, and I thought that was probably going to come back and bite me, but it so didn't. Um, it was quite an interesting match to watch. Uh, Essendon, uh, in front of an Essendon home crowd, which was uh, very much, uh, I think, boosted by the fact that there was a little bit of a protest march outside the game beforehand. Um, Sam Newman was in attendance and all the Essendon fans. Basically, it seemed... Um, a march against Essendon, but blaming everyone but Essendon um, for <laughs> their, their current flight. Uh, and so they're all the fans were riled up. They're all having a good time. Uh, and the Melbourne fans, as always, were kind of quiet. Um, Joe Danaher was really jumping out of his skin in this game. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And uh, Zaharakis, absolutely fantastic performance from him. And then a whole bunch of lesser lights just really came together and they did just enough. Um, Essendon very clearly wanted the win. Um, I think there's probably been a lot of talk in the off-season that Essendon were not going to be uh, competitive this year, and I think that they had a point to prove. Um, what do you think? Do you think that maybe that uh, point has been proven now and we might get a bit more of an easier run than we would have done otherwise? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was always going to be hard to rate Essendon until I started sort of playing serious games. Um, they got absolutely hammered in the pre-season. Uh, but you just didn't know how they would set up and, and how would they go once the real stuff uh, sort of started. I think talks of them being spoon certainties was certainly premature. I think they've got just as good a list at the moment as Carlton and Brisbane do, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point whether they have actually proved their point or not. It's quite possible they might get a bit of a letdown, a mental letdown this week, um, which hopefully we can take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Janus? Oh. I would say that uh, I actually, when I was going through a thing with the season, I'd like to say that I actually put a bet on Essendon to win, but I didn't, <laughs> even though I should have, um, <laughs> because I actually thought that they had a chance. And the reason why I think they had a chance was simply because I think that they would have looked, been realistic about their chances and said, you know what, there are certain games that we're going to have a chance in and actually get up for, so we're going to save our or keep our powder dry until we actually play these teams and Melbourne would be one of them, Carlton's another one, Brisbane as well anytime they play those particular teams because they don't want to I mean even though they, they say that um, they don't want to finish bottom because they don't want the wooden spoon and all that sort of stuff so um, I think that's basically what they've done so they've 
gone really hard last week, mm. and this week it's probably going to be like a return to return to form, basically, because I mean, you saw what they were doing in the preseason with uh, unlimited rotations. Um, people mm. they were just getting thrashed. So if they pushed themselves to that to the ninety limit and got over the line against Melbourne. The next week is always the thing where they go, okay, we've got our win for the fans and stuff that supported us. Now we can go because no one will be expecting them to win at all. Now, that being said, they could still win if, like, if they've got a sniff and a sniff of it. I'm sure John Westfold will say, well, hang on, boys, this is a chance. We're in this. Let's let's go for it, you know. And then they'll get that self belief. But if we manage to just get the few first few goals and uh, crush any hope of a uh, an unlikely victory yeah yeah well I was going to mm. say unlikely yeah. yeah yeah then I can I can see it being a pretty pretty easy win but that's the most important thing if they're close like a three quarter time or anything like that then yeah it's squeaky bum time as Sir Alex Ferguson would say for me, there's one, for me there's one other question which is uh, obviously one other thing just quickly they have had an un- unchanged lineup from last week which I suppose is really the correct response from that kind of win but um, with the John Worsfold as coach uh, he's not got a great record against Port Adelaide uh, even Matthew Primus managed two wins no. out of five against him uh, and overall I think we've played them 18 times when he was coached and we won 11 um, you'd have to think that as a rule he hasn't had the answers for mm. Port in the past or for Adelaide in the past in that matter Um I don't know, do you, do you think there's really much to be concerned about in terms of the, our tactics being shut down? I think we've actually got um, a bit of a better record um, than that. I think uh, we won 13, lost 6. I think we've played 19 times. But, um, mm. yeah, I mean, my my first thought was, uh, yes, we should be concerned. He's a great coach, um, has had some wonderful teams over the years, but we do just seem to get the job done against Worst Fall. Um I think the danger really comes into how Essendon play the game. Um, they're second in uncontested possessions and they average plus 60 against their opponent. Um, uh, we are 18th and average minus 70 against us. So that's a, that's a bit of a problem. We've got the lowest disposal efficiency in the league with 66%. Mm. They've got the highest kicking efficiency in the league with 71%. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think Essendon have... Uh, well, there was I thought there was two really distinct styles of play that they had against Melbourne. Uh, the first being that... Uh, when they could, they really hit Melbourne fast and direct on the counter through the corridor. And I thought this provided them with uh, with plenty of success. Um, the second was when Melbourne were blocking the corridor. They switched to a really short possession-style game mm. uh, with plenty of switching and short kicks along the wings. Um, it was almost like chess pieces slowly moving up the field. Uh, and that really did actually frustrate Melbourne quite a lot. Um, and they really had no real sort of answer to that. So I think that's... The first point is where I'm a little bit concerned is that if they can turn the ball over um, with our poor sort of efficiency, um, they are really quick and, and uh, do play quite direct um, and can uh, or will certainly hurt us on the rebound, I would think. Absolutely. Um, just a quick interrupting question from the Spreaker board. Um, do anyone reckon we'll get 50000 for the game? Just under. Just under? Forty-eight. Yeah. So you don't think the time slot, because uh, we always heard you know, the idea of working in the city and walking down to the game was meant to be the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. You don't think we'll manage to push it a bit further than that? I hope so. I hope we get bloody 53,000 there, but I, I just reckon we'll get a little bit under. I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> 
Fair enough. Now, I think just uh, getting back to the game, there is one question I think that we have to answer, and he was really was the spearhead of the side in every literal way, uh, and that's Joe Danaher. Mm. Um, how do we match up against him? Yeah. It's going to be tough. He leads the league in uh, contested marks and also marks inside 50. He was an absolute monster against Melbourne. He had 15 marks, seven contested, only managed two goals four um, from some pretty bad kicking. He could have really had a day out and kicked five or six. Um, Kyle Langford also proved a, a pretty good foil as well. He's had a pretty slowish start, I guess, to his career, but has played a couple of consistent games uh, this year. Mitch Brown's another one uh, with his height and uh, and pace, which caused a little bit of trouble. But I guess with Danaher, we'd probably be looking at Trengove due to his height um, to match up on him. I think he did a pretty good job on him last year as well. Do you think he's got the mobility to go with him? I don't think Danaher's the most mobile player going around, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I don't think he's overly quick off the mark. I think he's got a really good contested mark. I think um, Trengove's got the height uh, and the reach to be able to cause him some issues. Um, I think he kept him to, uh, to pretty much no influence last year and only got a, a couple of goals in the last quarter. Um, so I'd be hoping that uh, JT can do that job again. That's fair enough. Uh, and as far as defence, I think Essendon's still pretty solid. Uh, how do you think we'll go in terms just in getting through the scores um, against a couple of fairly decent, accountable defenders? We just Thanks. need to uh, work our way through it. That's all. Don't bomb it long to Charlie Dixon all the time, you know, and just do what we were, spoke, what we were doing in 2014, and that was actually like considering the play and considering how we're going to, when thinking through it, rather than just um, playing dumb football, I guess. Mm, mm, mm. It's going to be interesting to see the matchups. You would think uh, James Gwilt would go to Westhoff. I think he's played on him quite regularly in the past. Mm. Um, Dixon, you would think, would get Michael Hartley in his second game, so that might be something we could exploit with True. his uh, experience there. Um, and then they've just got a host of these sort of not too bad, sort of medium-sized defenders. Matt D from uh, from Richmond's come in and done a pretty decent job so far. Uh, Mark Bagley, uh, who's been there a few years now, he's a he's a really good player. Uh, Martin Gleeson's probably um, the one that I've sort of noted down back. He provides their rebound from the back line. He's a really smooth mover, um, quick, good skills. Um, I hope we can exploit the fact that he is very very outside and that we put right. someone like Need on him maybe. Um, even though there's a bit of a height difference there. I think he's about 190 centimetres. Uh, but he's picked up 39 disposals this year and only two have been contested at this point. So that's uh, that's running at uh, Nathan Loney level. Wow. <laughs> that's good to see him playing for someone else then. <laughs> mm. uh, all right. So, look, there's just one uh, big point of discussion, I think, that uh, we can really talk about. And it fits perfectly in line with our Fringe Force 5 for this week, which is... Uh, John Butcher, um, there's been a... Obviously, we love, about, we love talking about John Butcher on the podcast, and uh, this is the week we're going to do it. And you'd have to think, there's a lot of people thinking he could have come in this week. And uh, just a quick a couple of stats. He was drafted at pick eight in 2009. He's 24 years old. He's played 28 career games with an average of a goal and three marks. Uh, he kicked six goals in his second game, but he hasn't come close to matching that impact since, really, uh, even, I suppose, as, a, as a, someone setting up goals. Uh, he wasn't selected this week. What is the future for the future? I would say that he just needs to be consistent with performance and he'll get his turn. I think that 
what's happened, I mean, last week was a great performance against the Crows. Like, he was solid for four quarters, which is probably the first time in a long time that that's happened for him. And But the week before, he just wasn't cited at all. So that's what the coaches are looking for. They're just looking for him to be consistent and how he's going to... Re- they're probably also looking at how he's going to react to disappointment, I guess. Like, he would look at Paul Stewart going into the side and go, well, how, how the hell is this guy getting a game above me when I played so well on the weekend? But it's one of those things that in a game uh, like AFL football, you need to deal with disappointment and actually just get to work and prove them wrong, prove the selectors wrong and, and come out with a really good performance on the weekend. And then that, I reckon... Do you think that at age 24 this is something that we should really even be having a question asked of him about whether he can cope with disappointment? Um, I mean, yeah, that, that's peak age for an AFL footballer that he's coming into right now. And if he's yeah. still sort of answering that question as to whether he can deal with the disappointment of not being selected, isn't that a, a really huge red flag? I think it's more of a case of just... I'm not saying that he needs to deal with disappointment in terms of, oh, yeah, he's going to drop his bundle or anything like that. I'm saying more of a case of, is he going to come out with come out with a better with a similar performance to what he did last week? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Like, is he going to back it up rather than a case of, oh, yeah, it's just his attitude or something like that? Because in the past, you know, he's come out with a really good game. The next game is just fallen away for one reason or another, he hasn't been able to get into it. So I think that if, as long as he can get that consistency, because in the past, that's what was required for a Port Adelaide player to get AFL football, was mm. to actually have a consistent performance. I mean, you had guys like, um, I think, I can't remember, it was a long time ago, but I think Boak started in, in, the, in Glenelg, in the SNFL, oh, and he yeah. was getting like, was it was, was it him? I can't remember exactly who, but there was there was definitely a thing of oh, you have to earn your stripes basically before you come into the into the team, and yeah, I think the yeah. uh, the dearth in performance that we've had over the past few years that's sort of like being relaxed a little bit, and people are like looking for, and for some reason they relax it in 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 case of John Butcher, and I can understand that, but yeah. I mean, if he comes and performs next week, then I'll be all for championing his cause. Come in. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if he came in this week either. You know, I would have been happy for him to come in this week, but I can understand that they didn't want to do that. No, fair yeah. enough. Look, it's all about consistency with John. You know, he was very impressive on the weekend, and that's the butch that we really should be seeing week in, week out. He was hard. He was exceptionally aggressive, hit the contest hard, took some strong grabs, kicked four goals. It's the whole behaviours to outcomes uh, that Ken used to talk about uh, back Mm. in 2013. Effort was there, um, so he got his just reward. But the week before, he had, what, two kicks, one mark, something like that. So, you know, it's all about consistency. And, you know, the same people that are sort of gnashing their teeth that um, he didn't get a go this week were sort of saying that he should have been delisted at the end of last year, um, seven days ago, after his uh, round one performance. So... I don't know. If he can put a couple of consistent performances together, then he's going to be more of a chance of getting a shot in the side. I think he knows where he sits in terms of the squad. Um, he is depth. I think that's where he is. Um, and it's just all about um, putting together some, some really good performances, kicking goals, and, uh, and putting his name up there. 
now I've got a bit of a question for both of you. Um, do you think that if you put them against each other, would you say John Butcher was better or worse than Damon White? Uh, I think Whitey was more consistent. Mm. Um, I think uh, oh, it's hard to say. I, I just tear my hair out at uh, Johnny Butcher's um, positioning. He always seems like he's out of position. Um, so for him, it's the fact that he just can't actually get the ball. With Whitey, I used to tear my hair out because he'd take a wonderful mark, a really good contested mark, and then he'd just either kick it out on the full or, or miss mm. uh, from you know 15 metres in front, which I guess is a John Butcher trade as well. But uh, I think Whitey was a bit more consistent in his games at AFL level. And look, I, he had a really good 2006, I think it was. Um, you know, maybe a little bit harsh. Um, Maybe could have got a few more games. Mm. I was a fan of Whitey. I liked him. Janice, what's your thought? Yeah, I'd have to. I'd probably have to agree with that. I mean, if I had a choice between the two of them, I'd probably. But then again, you're looking at the midfield and the people that were delivering the ball to Wyatt. Maybe that was part of it too. You know, I mean, he had guys like. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sean Burgoyne, Peter Burgoyne, um, guys like that delivering delivering the ball. And it was, I mean, as much as um, we like our midfield now, you know, in terms of the actual skill level and stuff, it was like those guys were pretty well drilled and they were like premiership players. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to, uh, to really judge both of them on their point. But purely based on their performances and what they were offered to the team, in isolation, you'd have to go white over Butcher. Yeah. Just. I think Whitey um, had the chance to actually lead the forward line when Treadway went down in 2006 when he almost did his knee. Um, and Johnny Butcher's really not had that opportunity. So, um, yeah, I don't know. For me, you'd have to say Whitey at this point. I, I agree. I actually, I don't I don't think it's all that close. I think you have to say Damon White by a fairly long way. But I did certainly take the point that um, a lot of it came down to uh, how the ball's going, being delivered to him. Um, I think that a lot of what we saw that has been good in the past was Polek and White both being pretty much fit and playing games. We really haven't had that luxury at all um, the last two years. And I think that sort of it makes it hard for any key forward to sort of have a, a real impact when the guys that you rely on most for position disposal when you're on the lead uh, are missing and we don't seem to be doing a very good job of replacing them on the whole. So uh, I think that could be part of the issue. Um, and maybe that look that maybe John Butcher's non-inclusion this week is partly in recognition of the fact that we, we don't have that clean possession going to the forward line. So maybe his impact would be diminished and we already have one person up there shoving blokes around and bringing the ball to ground. Um I don't know, do you think he'll... Assuming he maintains his current habit of being inconsistent in the SNFL, do you think that he'll get games this year at all? I think he'll play three or four games this year. I think there's going to be a time when Charlie Dixon will get injured because that's just what's happened in his career to date. I don't think he's going to play every game this year. Um, We've already seen Schultz go out of the side. Um, I think if we want to play three tall key forwards, um, and he has a really good performance uh, this week and next week. Uh, we could see him in pretty soon, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Mm. All right. Well, I still maintain. Um, sorry, Janice? 
I was going to say, I still maintain he's probably going to get like 10 games, but that's pretty much hope rather than anything else. Just because I want to see him like get a consistent run at it, but you know. I reckon he'll be lucky to get four or five well, in my view. If Schultz struggles to come back, then I can see him possibly getting 10 games. Um, if Schultz comes back in the next sort of three or four weeks, then uh, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, well, that's it's definitely dependent on that. Mm. Based on pe- people getting injured and things like that. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, we'll just quickly jump to the Magpies game before we come back for the final wrap. Um, we're playing against North Adelaide Alberton Oval at 2.10pm on Saturday. So uh, if you've got the membership that gives you access to those games, get along. Um, Dougal Howard obviously dropped back into the side. Uh, and there's a debut uh, for Nathan Rudloff, former captain of Teak Tree Gully. Um, anything interesting in this match, you're thinking? Is there anything that we're sort of thinking... Is there still anyone there left for possible AFL inclusion that we should be keeping an eye on from a power perspective? And from a Magpies perspective, do you think this is one we can win? I hope so. I bloody hate North Adelaide, so I hope we beat them, to be honest. Um, I think there's still plenty of uh, people to uh, to look out for. Um, we've just spoken about Butcher. He's obviously around the mark. Dougal Howard's there. Kane Mitchell had 39 touches on the weekend. I think a lot of people thought that he might be an inclusion in the AFL this week. Didn't happen, but um, he was certainly around the mark. Um, you've also got to look at uh, someone like Jesse Palmer. He's been pretty consistent so far. Um, I spoke about Logan Austin earlier. Um, and then there's Cam O'Shea, who's always sort of around the mark as well, and he's an emergency this week. Um, and, and again, he was sort of widely tipped uh, to come in the side as well. So I think there's still sort of five or six players that are really pushing, uh, which is good. Fair enough. Janus? Uh, yeah, like, just want to see what Dougal Howard does, basically. Uh, I want to see how he responds to going back, like he's had his taste of AFL football, and some players, like, re- seem to respond well to that and want to push back and get in, back into the AFL side as quickly as possible. Some people would just fall off a cliff after it. Um, hopefully, Dougal is the latter, sorry, the former rather than the latter, is what I should say. Um, and yeah, he backs up in and continues putting the performances that got him selected. And uh, when we need a backup ruck slash forward in the coming weeks, I'm sure that he will be pushing for selection again. Fair enough. And uh, do you think we can beat North Adelaide? Do you think we'll get the win at Albert and Oval? Definitely hope so. Definitely hope we can. I mean, we. A lot of people were saying that last weekend that because of the performance that we put up against Adelaide and, and the fact that we were decimated in terms of different injuries and things, that uh, we were going to get thrashed by the Adelaide Crows reserve side and it didn't end up happening until they pushed us out in the last quarter. But So there's definitely the chance or there's definitely a good chance that we can win, but again we're taking players out from the side because they've got those injury lists in that are happening. Mm. So you just don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that it could be out of our control more than anything else. No, fair enough. All right. Well, we'll just, I guess uh, there's, there's probably a few players worth uh, noting in North Adelaide's side. Uh, Mitch Harvey's playing. We delisted him at the end of last year. Alex Barnes kicked four goals last week. He was a former Magpies player. Uh, ben Jarman, he's uh, playing in the league side at the moment. He had a pretty good game uh, last week. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's quite a few good players uh, or recognisable players in North Adelaide's lineup at the moment, but um, hopefully we um, are able to beat them, especially at Alberton. It would be nice to beat them at Alberton. Yeah, you don't want to lose games there. No, God no, not not when there's already so much debate about whether we should even have them. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, just might as well start wrapping it up now. Um, I'll go through a couple of the, the basics we go through every week. Um, so, guys, who do you think is going to win? What do you think the margin's going to be? And who do you think is going to be our highest goal kicker? Jonas? What, Adelaide? Jonas? Mm. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I'm going to go 87 points and a so, half goal kicker. Be what? <laughs> Will be Charlie Dixon with six goals. Oh wow! Okay. <clears throat> I think um, Essendon are going to impress for a half. I reckon they're going to lead at half time. I think Bigfoot is probably going to crash um, <laughs> before we get on top by about thirty nine points. I think we're going to win. And highest goal kicker, I'm going to say Robbie with five. I personally, I think the Port are going to win, but I think it's going to be a game where we never get more than maybe about four goals in front of them, and I think we'll probably finish with a margin of about four or five goals. Um, I think that we'll probably be doing just enough to win because I sort of feel that form follows how we, where we were last week, and I think Essendon will do enough to stay in touch so they don't get completely smashed. Um, highest goal kicker, gosh, I don't know. I would really love it to be Charlie Dixon, but don't know, don't know, hard to say. Um, go with Dixon. So, uh, next question. Uh, a spud who might tear us apart. Have you got anyone in mind that you think might be of exceptionally uh, dangerous to us that we should be watching out for? That we should remember their number so we can curse them? Oh, look, there's probably a few there um, that you could look at on paper. I'm going to say Nick Comer simply because I think he's the worst player on an AFL list this year. And uh, the fact that they gave him a three-year deal a few years back uh, sort of sums up Essendon at the moment, I think. That's fair enough, Janus. You know, I don't know much about Essendon's list in terms of their top-up players and all that sort of thing to actually make a comment, so I'm just going to say, pick a name out of a hat and say Matthew Stokes, even though he's not really a spud because he's a premiership player, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but you know, just, uh, just, I just think he's going to... I don't, wouldn't call him a spud, but I just think he might... When they have a day out or something because he's that fast. Get on the end of some uh, out the back goals. He'd yeah. like to do that, I think. Look, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Ryan Crowley, who again is not a spud though. He's probably okay. a bit past it, but I think he's just uh, exactly the sort of player that could have the crowd howling pretty quickly just with a, a little bit of niggle and a, a couple of telling disposals or played for free kicks. He's exactly that sort of player. That you go, he should not be doing that well against us, but I think he probably will. Um, all right, now for the for, uh, my, my actually, favorite, I'm gonna sorry. I'm gonna jump in. I'm, yeah. I'm just gonna jump in and say someone who's probably not a spud, but has been a bit spudly the, the last sort of couple of years. Of Matty Lewenberger, uh, the Bombers yeah. have conceded um, a hit out to advantage rate of 44 percent for their opposition this year, which is the lowest uh, in the AFL, or the worst in the AFL, I should say. So, the whole uh, Lewenberger versus Loby battle should be uh, pretty interesting. Germans versus Germans should be yeah. I, I guess I guess we can see where this week where the lobby will keep up his record of having opponents play pretty good games against him. Um, obviously last week wasn't too bad, but prior to that he's not been all that great, I suppose. 
Um, now, just quickly. So they through. can see the most hitouts to advantage, and Lobie can't win a hitout to advantage. So it's going to be a, a nil old draw, <laughs> I reckon. Uh, excellent. All right, so now I'll just go through the bet the house. Now, just for a recap, last week we all lost our houses. Um, basically, Eddie Betts kicked five goals. Macca said he'd kick six or more, and uh, Rick said he'd kick one or less. So they were both wrong. And I said Sam Gray would be our top possession getter, which was nowhere near the case. So uh, we're not doing too well on something that's supposed to be a bit of a safe bet for us. Uh, mm. Macca, what, what I'm running out of houses. Yeah, I've lost two. I think, I think uh, yeah. Maka, what's your choice for your bet the house this week? What's the thing that you think is pretty likely to happen that is still a bit of a big call, but it's not too big? Okay. I'm going to bet the house that no matter what the result on the weekend, whether we lose, whether we win by a couple of kicks, or whether we win by 120 points, our forum is going to be filled with complaints about how we play. If we lose, it's going to be the end of the world. If we win, well, it doesn't mean anything because it was only Essendon. So it's yeah, a lose-lose situation, I think. Yeah, but that's that's too safe, really. Too <laughs> 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 safe. <laughs> All right, I'm going to say that... Uh, oh, okay. I'm going to say that uh, Matty Lewenberger will get more hit-outs to advantage than uh, Matty Loby. Yeah, that's a fair call. I like that one. Janus, what have you got thoughts on? I'm going to take. I'll take a big risk here and say uh, it's all going to come together. This game, oh, really? and we're just going to just, yeah. Well, I just I picked them to win by 87 points, so therefore I've got to kind of like <laughs> so, that, don't I? So you're just going to you say that your, your regular prediction is also your big call for betting the house. Fair yeah, enough. So. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put you down for 80 points or more. No, well, no, just that. No, not the 80 points or more. I'm just saying that the whole like you actually see it all like actually what was what's supposed to happen will happen so instead of people like complaining i'll go completely opposite of what maca was saying with his first one instead of people complaining about it people are going to go well actually played well there you go you think that there's going to be disciples for the press basically yeah some well not disciples of the press but the people will just say what we played well okay fair enough i think we'll let you get away with that one um, Rick sent his in. Uh, his uh, view, as far as I can see, the PA will play uh, Never Tear Us Apart in Chinese and the crowd won't know the words. Um, but <laughs> <to> get... <laughs> that's Which I great. Think, I don't think that's oh, the real that. one. I hope that happens. But I think the real one here is Boke to get 35 plus possessions and three goals, which I think that I'd love it to happen, but it'd be a pretty huge turnaround in form, I'd wow. say. Mm. Um, and just, uh, we missed this one, but the spud that will tear us apart, he reckons it'll be J. Mar or Gwilt, which, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, now, as for the bet the house for me... J. Um, not even playing. Isn't he? Oh, he's not, is he? <laughs> then that's not going to happen. <laughs> if he tears us apart, there's something really bad going on. So it'll be Gwilt. It'll be Gwilt then, in theory. Um, and for me, the bet the house, I'm going to go with this being Charlie Dixon's week that he actually gets to stand up and be Charlie Dixon for Port Adelaide. I'm going to reckon at least three goals, and I'm going to say probably at least six, seven marks. Let's say six marks. I reckon that's okay, Cole. I think that might happen. Um, and if it does, it'll be a really nice story. Friday night in front of an Adelaide Oval crowd and finally gets on the board in a, in a serious way. I think it'll be very positive if that can happen. Yep. Yeah. All right, excellent. Well, um, we're just a little bit over the hour again, so I think it's 
basically time to wrap up. Um, I'd like to thank you both for coming on, Janus particularly. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed our heavy little discussion on the press. I think that um, I think we might have broken it down a little bit more than we might have seen on on Big Footy at times, and hopefully uh, the audience enjoyed it as well. Um, thank you both, and um, go Port Adelaide. Go the power on the pit. Carport. What? Carlisle sends it long. Modlop just on and takes the mark. He can give Port Adelaide the lead. Hamstring hurt. Plays on. Sends it high. Goal square. Long. McVeigh gets back. Port Adelaide in front. The magic man of all people. He 